amazing worship team. Thank you so much. And uh, my name is Manohar James, and I'm a resident scholar at High Point, and I'm going to read scriptures for us this morning. And today's scripture reading comes from the book of Psalms, number 11, and I'll be reading it from New International Version. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows, they set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates them with a passion. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous, he loves justice. The upright will see his face. Let me repeat the last verse. For the Lord is righteous, he loves justice. The upright will see his face. May God bless the reading of the scriptures. Amen. Thanks, Manohar. So this is our memory verse for the psalm series. So we'll just read it together today. And then we'll start memorizing it. Hopefully this looks easy compared to the last series. So let's read it together. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on his name as long as I live. Second Corinthians 5, 7 says, We live by faith and not by sight. The, the series we're going to be doing, we started last week, um, Psalm 16, Psalm 11 this week, is called Feel, Feel Better. And the, the focus here is simply that in the way the Bible teaches us to feel better, to just be happier, to feel better about our lives, whatever, we all want to feel better. The way the Bible teaches us to get to that end is to learn to get better at feeling. Learning like what our emotions are for, what they're supposed to be rooted on, how they're supposed to flow. When do we need to listen to ourselves and when do we need to talk to ourselves? What do we do with all the things that human beings experience in our emotions and our experiences so that by feeling better, we can feel better? Because if you just want to feel better and you just do whatever you feel like will make you feel better— not only will you ultimately be more miserable, but you will extract all of your happiness from others. Everyone will have less. Everyone will feel less. Everyone will be less. But when God is the provider of anything, there's always an abundance. There's always more. That's why love always produces more. And not—and you don't feel like it's less, right? And the problem is, is that in order for that to work, you actually have to believe before you see the result. You have to believe, you have to actually do something in faithfulness on the basis of God's promise. Remember this from last week? P-F-F-P. God promises that something is true. P, promise. We believe it, faith. We act like we believe it and step out daringly, faithfulness. And then we see how God brings about his goods through his providences, right? Provision. 
And so in Psalm 11, we're going to deal with the issue of just being afraid, right? Everybody experiences fear. Fear is a normal and good human emotion. There are plenty of things to be actually afraid of that really do threaten us in the real world. And then there's plenty of things we imagine threaten us in the real world. But Psalm 11 doesn't mainly just focus on fear and being afraid. It mainly focuses on what does someone do with fear and feeling afraid. And it basically lays it out saying this. David says, whenever you are terrified, whenever something really threatens your safety, the question is, one, are you going to face the cowardice and find courage? The second question is, on what basis? Where is preserving courage to be found? One of, the, one of the difficulties we have in life is that we want to believe that our life isn't going to be a battle. Everybody wants to believe that. Don't you want to believe that? Don't you want to believe that your life is just going to get easier at any moment? Of the battles you faced in the past will not recur into the future, and there's not going to be new battles that start. I mean, don't you want to believe that your life is going to not be a fight all the way through? And he, here's what I need to tell you. On the basis of the whole Bible, that's never going to happen until glory. As long as depravity exists, and sin exists, and selfishness exists, and the flesh, and all of those things, um, we are never going to exist in a moment where that's not a fight. And therefore, if your main emotion towards that fight is that it is wearying you, it is just a matter of time before you collapse into cowardice. This is a fact. You're going to be in a fight. You're going to be in a hundred different fights the rest of your life. They're going to be costly fights, and they are going to be constant fights. And they're going to be of all different kinds. Some are going to be like our personality traits, just stuff we keep doing that we wish we could stop doing. We have a really hard time stopping doing it. Obsessiveness, and believing the worst about people, and jumping to conclusions, and angers flaring up, and inordinate sexual desires that we just let fling everywhere. All these kinds of things, right? It's health problems, Right? You gotta fight health problems, right? I, I have a chronic sleepiness problem, which when compounded with sinus problems, just, just like knocks me out. It feels like a fight. For about, for about a third of my life, it feels like a fight just to get out of bed. Just to be like, there is energy in here somewhere, and if I get upright, I'll be able to walk. And I don't, I, I've prayed for healing a hundred times. I've gone to all the best doctors that I can afford. Here, here we are. There's, there's, there's all kinds of problems like that that we're just going to have to face that are just going to be there, right? Then there's other stuff that will happen, like your kid will take a turn for the worse, and you'll be like, I don't know how long this is going to last. Your marriage or lack of marriage, your presence or absence of covenantal friendships, your work situation, how your neighbors are treating you, how your landlord just treated you when they evicted you, and how much you wanted to smash their windshield— on their Mercedes. Like, all of those things are all battles that are going to come along, and a lot of them are going to be with you for a while, and you don't know when or if they're ever going to change. And part of the fear is knowing that you can act nobly. You can act in all godliness that you can know. You can live in faith and not by sight, and the people that you do that towards will either attack you for it or take advantage of you for doing it. And that may be the case. That may happen. And that doesn't matter. Not ultimately. And 
There's all kinds of other really hard things just in the moment issues of cowardice and bravery. I remember sitting down with a young woman who had been beaten up pretty bad by her boyfriend. And both of them had been a little drunk and she had kind of beaten up on him back. And he had beaten up, she found out that he'd beaten up a bunch of different girls. And so she was stuck in this situation where if she goes to the police so that he's not going to beat up the next girl, maybe, he could then get her arrested And what's the right thing for her to do? And what's the cost of that? There's all kinds of things in the moment. For example, there are some places in the world where if you speak up for religious freedom, you could be killed. If you speak up for your convictions, there's a a woman who they said this week, if she speaks at a particular college in America, they think that she may either be killed or maimed. She's going to give a political talk at a university in America. Right here. Freedom of speech. There are places in the world, I don't know if Mark mentioned Venezuela when he's praying about the world. There is no, no economic freedom in Venezuela. And it's not coming anytime soon. And if you stand up in that country and you say, look, the problem here is, is we don't own our stuff. We can't build a life for ourselves. We're not even allowed to freely exchange with each other and make wealth. If you want to piss it away, we should be free. You do that in Venezuela in the morning and you are probably going to be dead by noon. Crux is the murder capital of the world right now. And if you, in, in our country, you stand up and tell the truth about sexuality? There are all kinds of moments and situations in which, man, courage could be very, very costly. And the fear that you feel is extraordinarily real. And because it's true that most of the fights we fight don't end, we have to think entirely differently than our generational cohort about how, what we're doing in our character, how we're preparing ourselves for the future. We, we don't prepare ourselves for the future. We act like the fight isn't going to last. We don't—we think that our health plans and our smartphones and our neighborhood control and our all our federal, you know, health plans and all this stuff, we think this stuff is going to protect us. Listen, it's not going to protect us from most of the fights human beings fight. You might not starve. But if you go to just the Ten Commandments, okay, these are human struggles that are at least 3,500 years old, right? Is respecting God, is that fight? Respecting ourselves versus respecting God, is that going to end soon? Is the desire to take from others what doesn't belong to us and covet and envy what they have going to end anytime soon? No, smartphones didn't help with that. <laughs> right? What about indulging in sexual possession and desire for other people that don't, that aren't supposed to belong to you? What about submitting to right authority, starting with parents, but in all of its forms? And you can go through every one of these. None of them show any signs of abating anytime soon. And so it's one of the reasons why in Second Peter, that whole passage that we memorized, Peter said, for this reason, make all the more effort not just to have faith, but to add to your faith the growing maturity that faith should produce, which is virtue, right? And to virtue, knowledge, understanding why all these things work the way they do. And then what? To knowledge, self-control, I can control myself in the moment to do what I must do, and perseverance. I can keep doing it as long as I need to. 
And that is the only prayer, Peter tells us, of actually having a world in which there is then godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Now listen, the scriptures say in 1 Corinthians that no temptation has come against you except what is common in humanity. But whatever it is you face, God will give you a way to stand up under it, right? That is, no situation in any of our lives is too much for us. That does not mean that we can be morally and courageously infants, and God still has to orchestrate the world so that nothing overwhelms us. We get overwhelmed all the time. And I think for the most part, it's not because God isn't faithful. It's because we don't combine his promise with faith, seek to live it out faithfully, to build it into our character in the ways so that we have the strength that he's provided, the strength that he gives us to stand up up under all the temptations common to man is this. It is that in his divine power, he's given us everything we need for a life of godliness. And through his very good and precious promises, we can, we can experience and participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires. And in that strength, in the faith that produces virtue and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness, in that God strengthens and lifts us up so that when the weight of all of our battles come onto our shoulders— we can bear the weight. And yet, American Christians are so good at claiming these promises on the basis of a sense of entitlement, and yet doing everything we can to make sure we are as weak as possible under the straps of that backpack of all the fights of our lives. And not only can we not bear them ourselves, we're no good in doing what Galatians 6 says, that that not only should we carry our own burdens, but we should help shoulder the burdens of others. How many Christians have no capacity for excess weight? Now, if we realize that that's true, then, then fundamental to who we're trying to become in Christ, how we believe God's promises and step out in faith and faithfulness to see how he provides and how he'll shape us, has to be focused on courage. In many circumstances, you can take the word faith or faithfulness and just write the word courage in its place. And in most contexts, a lot of contexts, it will mean the same thing. Trust enough to stand. So what you can take from what David says in in Psalm 11 is, fear can only be tamed by what is more prized than safety. Whatever fears, whatever risks— do stand in our lives, which may be real, may be imagined. Most of our fears are real that we have expanded in our own fears, right? So they're twice as big as they need to be, but if you shrunk them down to their actual size, they're still real fears. And those fears can, can only be tamed by what is prized more than safety. You could even call it a safer safety. Right? He says, in the Lord I take refuge. You can basically get the message of the psalm if you know the first line and the last line. You can, you can sort of memorize this context by saying that the first line, I, in the Lord I take refuge. Why? Because the Lord is righteous. He loves justice, and therefore the upright will see his face. He says the first because of the second. Right? And, and verses 1 through 3 point up, and verses 4 and following point down. And 
There's this, there's this great line in the Old Testament that gets quoted a number of times in the New Testament in the book of Habakkuk. Have you read that one lately? That's supposed to be a joke, sorry. Um, in the book of Habakkuk, God is talking about something in relationship to judgment, the life of Israel, and so on, and he makes this a side statement that's just a, a parenthetical statement. It's not even part of the argument, but he's just saying, okay, sometimes people forget this. I need to drop this in to just make sure you understand the fundamental dynamic of how reality works in relationship of God and human beings. He says, because the righteous live by faith, or the upright live by faith. And then he goes on and talks about the pride of the nation and some other things. And so the New Testament authors go, yeah, that's what we're saying. That's what Jesus is all about. That's what it means to believe God's promises. That's what faith and faithfulness looks like. All of righteousness, all of godliness is essentially that uprightness or, or moral courage or godliness. It's just faith. The upright live by faith. Faith that is fortified by virtue and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and so on. Does that make sense? So let's go through those two questions quickly. How am I going to reject the invitation of cowardice, and how do I stand up on the foundations of courage? The first thing that has to happen is rejecting the invitation of cowardice. And, I, and I'm not making this up because this is some hobby horse I'm interested in. This is exactly what the first three verses of the passage are all about. The first three verses are David writing down essentially the invitation to, coward, to cowardice that he and all of his fighting men have received. So the context of this psalm in Psalm 11 is this. David is like this kid. He's like 15 years old, and this guy he's never met before named Samuel, this old guy, just shows up one day at his house and anoints him king of Israel, okay? Now the problem with this is there is already a king of Israel named Saul. And when there is a king and somebody else gets anointed king, that's called treason, Right? And so, generally speaking, David would have gotten killed, but a little while later, he was bringing food to his brothers who were getting ready to fight a battle against the Philistines. And there was this really big guy named Goliath. You may have heard this story. And he's like taunting everybody. No one will fight him. And David's like, shoot, I'll kill this guy. So he goes out and he kills Goliath with like a sling. And then he takes Goliath's own two-handed sword and cuts his head off. And like, like, how do you like that, Philistines? And like, he wins this enormous victory. And he becomes a celebrity, and so he becomes Saul's attendant instead of killing him. And then he becomes an officer and a fighting man and then a general, and he wins all these battles until the hit song in Israel is, sing it with me, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands, right? And Saul's response to this great hit is utter and sheer hatred, right? And so he starts trying to kill the man that is making his life. Because he sees God's blessing on him. He sees so much faith in this young man. That David has never tried to usurp Saul's authority. Ever. He's protected it at every turn. Protected his life at every turn. Defended him at every turn. He didn't ask to be anointed king. And so Saul starts tries to kill him. And so for a period of years, David basically runs from Saul. Saul's always trying to catch him. Always trying to kill him. And he's got like three, four hundred fighting men with him. And they're like hiding in caves. They're sleeping under rocks. They're doing everything they can to just not get killed. But while they're doing that, whenever an outside group will come in and start killing people in Israel, and Saul is too busy chasing him to fight them, he will go and fight them and deliver Israel while he's getting chased by the Israel actual king. Right? And so time and time and time again, David will show up at these towns all over Israel, and he'll say, will you help us? 
Will you give us a place to hide? Will you give us some food to eat? Will you give us a place of rest? And time and time again, what he apparently was hearing was, David, you're an international military celebrity, right? They're looking for good military officers in Syria, and they pay really well. Egypt is always looking for trustworthy people. Listen, why don't you just run? Like, the border is 13 miles away. You could be there by tomorrow afternoon. Why do you keep swirling around inside Israel where somebody's trying to kill you? If you would just leave, you'll be fine. Just like a bird, just fly to the mountain. Right? You can be free of this. You can escape. Why do you keep fighting? Right? The second image is that um, in older archery, before there were compound bows and stuff like that, people would carry their bow unstrung because it wouldn't catch on things and so on. And so in order to shoot your bow, you would take it out, you'd step through the string and bend it, and string the bow so it's ready to fire, and then you'd take your bow and you'd knock the arrow to ready to shoot, right? And then you'd pull it back. And in those days, unless you were hunting game, in military situations, they almost never shot straight. They would be a ways away and they'd shoot up so the arrow would come down on whoever it was. Okay? Now, in, in the translation of the NIV, it says they shoot from the shadows. The, the, the Hebrew literally says, out of the darkness. Okay? And so, imagine, if you will—so some of you might want to close your eyes. Imagine you are with David, and because you're running from Saul, you run at night usually, so that you can't be seen out in the open, because Israel is rolling, but there's lots of open places, and if they see you, they can—right? And you're going through one of these little valleys, and you're, you're marching with everybody, and then just all of a sudden, you start hearing— and all of a sudden, you're like your best friend standing next to you, his blood splatters on you because an, an, an arrow just went through his collarbone and into his midsection. And he just collapses right next to you. And you start hearing, people are pulling out shields, grabbing friends. Arrows are going through legs. They're trying to limp along, right? And the, the question is, what does a military person do in that context? What do you do? It's pitch black. There's no town around. You have no idea where these arrows are coming from. They've actually—they've obviously been—knew you were coming. They've hidden before you got there. They're making no noise. They can hear you clanging around, so they basically know where you are. They're, they're shooting fish in a barrel. And the assumption is, there's nothing you can do. There's only one thing you can do in that military situation, tactically, and that is run and try to live to fight another day. Right? Assuming you don't have RBGs. So— what they're, so what they're saying to David is they're saying, David, listen, this is the situation that you're in, okay? You are in an unwinnable situation. And when you're in an unwinnable situation, there's really only one thing you can do, right? And you see, all this is implicit because the invitation of cowardice is always leaving for you to complete the sentence. So, so they say, listen, David, the people who hate you, they've pulled out their bows. They've strung them. The arrow is at the knock. They're hiding in pitch darkness. What do you think is going to happen here? How do you think this is going to end? You think you can win this fight? You can't win this fight. Right? And then the third is, he says, when the foundations crumble, what can the righteous do? And this is the moral absolution. So first there's the appeal to survival, the appeal to the flesh, the appeal to our fear, to crank up our emotional panic high enough so that when you, I give you a faulty moral invitation— I give you a terrible moral argument, but one that you want to hear, you'll believe it. And that's when I say this. Listen, the way morality works is you have your job and other people have their job. 
and morality works, the garden flourishes, right? When everybody is kind of doing their job. When nobody does their job, you're living in the junkyard and there's no law, there's no rule, there's no, there's, there's no practicality. And the person who tries to be a good moral person when they're living in the junkyard where there are no rules, are just, they're just going to die. They're going to be the, the, the common fool who's just slayed in the street. You can't function by normal moral parameters in abnormal moral, abnormal moral circumstances. So like, yes, if the king of Israel wasn't trying to kill you, if for all of your service you were appreciated, if you could actually be the military officer you were meant to be, if all those things were in place, then yeah, you could like do, you could be noble and you could stay in Israel and all this kind of stuff. But they're not! And so it's perfectly reasonable for you to realize you don't have to do what you think you're supposed to do. Yes, you were anointed king of Israel. Yes, it is your responsibility to protect and lead Israel. Yes, God has promised you, you will be king. Yes, believing that is sticking with Israel. But Ah! You can just fly away like a bird. You can be in Syria tomorrow afternoon. It's like you're in an ambush where people are shooting you out of the darkness. There's nothing practical to do except for run. And listen, yes, you would have these moral responsibilities if everybody else was acting morally, but they're not. And so you don't either. Right? That's the argument of cowardice. It's a pretty good argument, right? It wins most of the time for most human beings. There's a, a book I've been reading recently called Against Empathy. I know it's a real page-turner. Um, I've actually come to call certain effects of empathy the treason of empathy, um, which is that empathy makes liars and cowards out of us. And here's what I mean by that. Um, this author, Alan Paul Bloom, um, his argument is basically this first part where he says, what empathy actually tends to do is narrow your vision and blind you to future consequences. And empathy only lets you love those who are in your mind's eye at the moment and no one else. So what his argument is this. If you're empathizing with a particular person, empathy is a now emotion and a here emotion. Now and here. And so if somebody says, this is happening and it's so painful, and you're like, now and here, now and here. So you're not thinking of who else might be involved in this. And you're not thinking about the future consequences for what might happen. And it leads people to do things that are actually extraordinarily unhelpful. Now, what Bloom argues, and I totally agree with this, is that empathy for what it is and what it's for is an extraordinarily important thing, mainly sympathy. Right? Empathy is in some ways a misnomer because it's believing you really can know how another person is feeling entirely. And many times it can be demonstrated, even in scientific psychological studies, that you don't really—you're wrong. You're empathizing. You think you're getting yourself to feel what they're feeling, and they're not feeling what you're making yourself feel so that you can feel what they're feeling. What empathy is meant to do, what sympathy is meant to do, is to let us know when we are thinking and feeling selfishly. When we let the flesh and our selfishness take over, what that does to us is we think in terms of what we want for ourselves, we turn that into a reasonable argument, and then we apply it to other people, not caring about them really. And what happens is when sympathy and empathy enter in, it reveals where we're being selfish, where we're being flippant, where we're not really thinking about what's happening to other people. And it reveals our selfishness and we go, oh, now that should, doesn't produce any conclusions. Empathy has an incredible ability to wake people up to what's happening. But it's usually terrible in directing what we should do about it. Okay. 
Now, there's lots of reasons for that, but one of the reasons for that is our flesh. And though the secular writing like this person, Paul Bloom, he doesn't talk about this, but what Paul—what David talks about is that what it also does is we use empathy in our flesh to absolve ourselves of our real responsibility by acting like we're being empathic. For example, essentially saying that we—because we don't want to have to do anything— we don't—we tell whoever's suffering, do whatever you want. And so we give them treasonous and cowardly advice because we aren't morally strong enough to tell them what's true, right, or good. And so we say, do whatever you want. And the main reason we tell them that is because we don't want anybody ever to hold us accountable in the same way. And two, we don't want to actually spend ourselves to help them and actually carry their burden with them. It's much easier to tell your girlfriend to go ahead and get a divorce than to say, listen, I am ready to help in any way I can as you work on your marriage. I will watch your kids for whatever date or vacations you need to go on together. If I will do this, I will do that, I will do these things, I will do whatever I can. You can turn my life upside down until I can help you get in the place where you're turning that corner. Those are very different things. And we use empathy to allow ourselves to be like, oh, it's okay. And I see this in every television show, every lecture I listen to, it's constantly around us everywhere. And it's making treasonous friends out of us, horrific citizens, and just flat out bad and cowardly people. Most of the things we do to help people as a nation and through charities and so on are often terrible for the people we're trying to help and makes the problem worse and not better. If you haven't seen, um, if you haven't looked into the, the global multi-billion dollar business of charity, watch the film Poverty, Inc. There's this great scene in it where they're talking with Nigerian computer programmers who put in a bid to write code for a program for the country of Nigeria. So the Nigerian government needs this software. These Nigerian software writers want to write it. One of the European governments gives a grant to pay for it to be written to the Nigerian government. With the stipulation, the contract has to be given to European programmers of that country. So, though these Nigerian programmers bid for it, it's given to, I think, they're Danish computer programmers. And guess what they do? They subcontract out for peanuts the part of the programming that isn't fun and that is hard to do to the Nigerian programmers who bid for it in the first place. And so they end up doing it for peanuts because they don't want to close their business. The European writers make piles of money, and it's all this collusion of charity. I don't know if you read the report after, the, after Ferguson, right? So I'm, I really—I am always really distrusting of empathy as it, like, generally lays out. And so I was very unsympathetic— towards the claim about Michael Brown and that police officer. But I, but I believe that what was happening there was a, was a call for empathy, right? Which, which, is, which should do this to me, I believe. I may have missed something here. I don't care. I haven't listened. There's something here I might probably have missed. So you know what I did? I didn't go protest, and I'm not saying you shouldn't have if you did. Here's what I did. I, I do not like Eric Holderer. I did not like his Justice Department under President Obama. I did not like the choices that they made. But I went and I got his Department of Justice report, and I read it. Because I wanted to know what they found, 
when they studied law enforcement in Ferguson. And you know what they mostly found? What they mostly found was African Americans were disproportionately being stopped and ticketed for things specifically related to poverty, specifically related to traffic, cars, things that happen when you're poor, like your taillight breaks, you don't get it fixed because it costs like $160 because cars are increasingly— the Increasingly, the cost of buying these parts is going way out of control, right? And so you can't get a $20 taillight anymore. It's $160, and then somebody has to install it for you, and blah, 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 blah. And so what was happening was there were these families that, like, they would park their car that wasn't running in a particular place. After 14 days, it could be ticketed. It was. And then it was ticketed every seven days after that for $120, right? These people do not have $150 to fix the taillight or to get a new tire. And so there was this— Sort of, and this is true of like all over America, right? And it, it's not that it didn't have anything to do with race. It had to do some stuff with race, but a lot of it had to do with poverty and ticketing and fines that is just part of how people run cities, but that disproportionately impact certain people, that is exacerbating problems of poverty and leading to evictions and all this kind of stuff. And virtually nobody in America knows that that's what they found. Nobody. It's right there in the report. It could not be spelled out more plainly. And if you want to take action to help most of the people that felt so upset, you, it, it was like traffic and ticketing law that needed to be dealt with for the most part. And if the, you would clean all that up, it's millions and millions and millions of dollars these people were being fined. And they were angry about it. And I would be angry about that, right? But you see, here's the thing. Empathy doesn't stop and think. Empathy, empathy feels, acts, and absolves. And mainly who it absolves is us. It's always a reaction. It will always react to be something like, oh, if I tweet this, then, I'll, then I, I participated. Okay, I, I don't have to do anything now. No, that's not how it works, right? You might be angry about the refugee crisis. There were like five or six people that spent 50 hours this weekend moving in the seven Iraqis that we got so that we could help that came to America that, that we pledged to help, and they spent 50 hours moving their stuff in and finding beds and doing stuff this weekend. My friend Manohar, who read the scripture earlier this morning, you know what? You know, so he does a ministry called Redeem India, where they, where they, we train, I, I'm on his board, we train pastors in India who have no theological training at all. Most independent pastors who believe the gospel in India, who are all over the hinterlands of India, have literally zero theological education. None. It's partly because some of the theological schools in India, which teach theology in English, by the time you get done with your two-year program, what are you really good at besides theology? English. And what can you do with English? And then you get a really good job. And so, like, the school that I was working with six years ago, 80% of their graduates from their two-year programs were going into call centers and not being involved in the church at all. I think they went to church, but that's it. We had these very theologically educated call center people, but they could make $460 to $500 a month, and you would make about 56 if you were a pastor. What do you think they're going to do? They're not worse than us, right? And so, you know what happens when Manohar talks to people about fundraising? You know what the fundraising experts tell him? They say, look, you can't raise any money training Indian pastors. 
Yes, the Indian church might be languishing for theological education. Yes, the best way to help the orphans of India would be a more robust, more theologically educated, more self-controlled and persevering, love-filled, mutually encouraging church that was shepherded well, that could minister to all the orphans in their locations, which wouldn't be long-term dependent on Western money that is drying up and all of this. Yes, that's true. Yes, that's true. But Americans will never give to that. Ever in a million years. Here's what you need to do. You need to start an orphanage, and you need to start a program to widows, okay? And you need to do some things for them, and you need to take a lot of pictures. A lot of pictures, okay? And then in your presentation, you need to say, this is under Redeem India. Won't you give to Redeem India? And then you'll have money to spend on what the Indian church really needs— But Americans will never get past their empathetic feeling about an orphan to think, what are the long-term consequences? What are the unintended consequences? What is really required? Is this going to work long-term? How does this stretch out financially? What perverse incentives am I creating? Nobody has any patience for that. All they have patience for is, oh, child, here money. And you guys, listen. That is so true of us. It's true of everybody. It's not more true of us than anybody else. But it's true. It's so true of us. And um, in all that we do, we need to let empathy and sympathy awaken us. But then we need to realize that that's as far as empathy can really go. And then we need to think about what the truth is. What is good and right? What's really happening? What don't we see? What's going on? Does that make sense? And you always have to be careful because when we are called to empathy, empathy is generally used within the sinful nature to absolve us or to control others. Whenever somebody is tapping into your empathy, you, have, you need to ask yourself the question, Is this something that they're using to absolve themselves, to take an unearned moral high ground so they can pretend to be on the side of the angels and feel good about themselves? And or are they using this to get to get at me and to then pull me over without argument to whatever they want me to do so that I can be captured by my feelings that I believe? How could it be wrong to trust these? Because how could it be wrong to trust something that feels as authentic as empathy, right? And so we just give ourselves to the controls of others. And this is being sold like hotcakes in our culture right now. And it's confusing us terribly and dividing us horribly. And it's being done not on just one side of the aisle. In fact, Bloom, and his, he's a progressive and an atheist, and his, the main example he likes to give is the Iraq war. They said, yeah, people were suffering in Iraq, and then 50,000 Iraqis died when we went and executed the war. Is that more or less suffering? Was our empathy for people to get into the war? really good? Now, whatever you think about the politics of that, his argument is just like, we, everybody does this to everybody. This isn't an issue of getting the right politics. It's, a, it's an issue of getting some wisdom, adding to your faith virtue, and adding to virtue knowledge so that we'll know how to be self-controlled and persevere in it. Does that make sense? The reason, the reason why this is so important is because People in this culture throw around a lot. How can you do this to me? How could you do this to me? How could you do that to me? I, I, I just, I'm so not a nice person. How did you do that? But that's the way we normally say, how could you do this to me? Is not the way David says, how could you do this to me? 
No, what, what David says, if you read first one carefully, he says, my refuge is in the Lord. So how can you say to me, be a coward? How can you do that? Do, do you think, I mean, can you imagine what he, what he, what he wanted to say to these people? Do you think when I am walking under the baking sun or freezing in a desert cave, do you think that I don't know Sirius 13 miles away? Do you think that I don't know the Philistines will pay me a fortune to kill Saul? You don't think I could have killed him myself a hundred times? You, you think I don't know that Saul could get to one of my men at any moment who just gets sick of living in the middle of nowhere in a garbage heap and just pay him some money. And when I'm not looking, he'll just run a knife through my lungs. You think I don't know that? You don't, you don't think I know that the archers are getting ready and they're knocking their bows and they're getting ready to shoot me out of nowhere. You, you think that that's lost on me? And do you think that I don't realize that the, follow, that the foundations are falling apart? That people aren't doing what they're supposed to do? You think that that's lost on me? And so I'm trying to be faithful because I don't get that other people are behaving badly? And then he, and he says, how could you? How could you talk to me like that? How could you pretend that you are my friend? That you care about me? How could you pretend that you're noble, that you have any kind of virtue in what you do because you don't want to help me is just sell me a bag of cowardice? How could you do that? How many times can you remember doing that to someone else and to yourself? And to your neighbor and to your friends. The first thing we have to do with, with fear and, and, and being afraid is knowing the invitation of cowardice when we see it, knowing its structure, knowing how tempting it is, knowing how people sell it with things like empathy, and knowing what it is when we see it. And if we don't have that knowledge built on virtue, there is no way we can have the virtuous knowledge that will create self-control and perseverance when, when Cowardice is sold to us by people who should be our friends and our brothers and sisters in Christ and our neighbors, right? The second thing is standing on the foundations of courage. David intentionally uses this play of words when he, he, he ends with the, accu with the invitation of cowardice. He's like, when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do, right? And the implicit answer to that is supposed to be nothing. There's nothing they can do. In the junkyard, all you can do is bite, right? But, but he says, no, 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 you're right. The moral foundations of the kingdom, they're all screwed up. That's totally right. He said, but he says, but there is a foundation. Like it says in Hebrews, there's a city that's builder and maker is God. He, said, he says, there is a foundation, and that foundation is the rock that's under my feet is actually the stone of the throne of God himself, that, that there, there's a foundation, there is a building, there is the seat of the throne of God himself that he sits upon, and there is his temple. And those are unshaken, unbroken, uncrumbled. And if I believe those are there, if I believe them, then that is a security greater than my safety. The cliche that we often spurn because we don't like sentiment God's still on the throne. All this stuff is happening, but God's still on the throne. That is a true cliche. 
that is 3,000 years old and has been true as long as there's been an earth, at least. And we shouldn't treat it as a cliche. And if you look at all the people who should be our heroes in the scriptures, none of them got to flee like a bird. Not one of them got to avoid nighttime archery. And not one of them got to say, well, the foundations are destroyed. What can I do? Moses' people were all caught in slavery. Um, the foundations have been destroyed. But he stood up to a pharaoh. Isaiah told the truth to Israel when they were utterly lost in sin until they sawed him in two. Um, the foundations have been destroyed. But there was something the righteous could do, telling the truth unto death. Elijah, Jezebel, and Ahaz, king and queen, were killing the prophets. They'd killed piles of them. And he stood up to them and to 450 prophets of Baal. And one day, right? You can't get more destroyed foundations than that, but there is something the righteous can do. Elisha stood up to the entire army of the Armenians. Armenians. Arameans. Arameans. This whole army, he just walked out to them. And God struck them all blind. And one man triumphed over the entire army. Do you know who Obed is? Who knows who Obed is? And not the Obed that is Jesse's grandfather or son, grandson or whatever. You know who Obed is? So one mention of him in the Bible in 2 Chronicles. Israel has broken up into Israel and Judah. Israel is the more wicked older brother with a higher population. Judah is the slightly more godly, but not very godly, southern kingdom. And there's this one point where God brings judgment on Judah by Israel attacking it, and they win, and they like kill as many men as they possibly can, and they take women, children, livestock, they take slaves and booty and just everything, and they're romping up north that they're like, man, God loves us. This is fantastic, right? And this guy, like out of nowhere, who doesn't have a very cool name, like walks out on these guys while they're like coming. These are all these like war chieftains. They've got blood still caked in their arm hair. And they're walking back with their like five new concubine wives. And they're pretty excited about it. And this guy comes out and he's like, how dare you? How dare you take your brothers, kill your brothers and take their wives as your slaves? How dare you treat our own kin, our own clans this way. God is going to judge you beyond everything, anything you've ever seen because God sought to judge Judah, but you in your madness made it far worse. You just wait, right? What do you, what did he think was going to happen? Like, how do you think this story ends, right? But what happened is there were a couple of chieftains that were like, he's right. He's right. And not only did they not do anything worse? They released everyone. They clothed everyone, anointed them with oil, gave them back their wealth, and escorted them back to the city of Jericho, the city of Palms, until they could be turned all back over to their own clans. Because this guy stuck his neck out. No miracle. And on and on. Nehemiah, these men come, there's people who are going to assassinate you. The only way to avoid assassination is to hide in the temple, which would be a sacrilege for him to do that, right? And you know what his response was in Nehemiah 6.11? Should a man like me run? He found out only later that it was a trick to get him to go into the temple and desecrate it so that they could attack his character and undermine the entire movement he was leading. And on and on and on. There isn't one hero that found it easy. That found it, that, that found it easy. 
there are many simple truths. There's almost an inverse relationship between how simple a truth is and how hard it is. In many cases, the simpler it is, the harder it is. None of our heroes, none of our right heroes, ever found the simple things easy, especially courage. And Jesus' answer for this was never simplistic. He said in, in Matthew 10, for example, he said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. That is, it's going to be complicated. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. That is, be righteous, be upright, live by faith and not by sight, and yet you're going to have to be smart about it. Right? Be on your guard against men because people aren't going to treat you fairly, right? Now, a good example of this is Obadiah. Because there's a lot of Christians who get really simplistic about this, and they just do whatever feels the purest to them. And so they'll quit work without having another job, and they'll like tell, you know, some guy will be like having a fight with his wife, and his marriage is not going well, and he just like, well, the pure thing is to me, just tell her the truth about her. And he'll just say whatever he feels like the truth is, because that feels the purest, right? Obadiah is a great example of this. He was the prime minister under Ahab, whose wife was Jezebel, okay? Not a righteous boss. Filled Israel with all kinds of horrific sins. His wife basically had a hobby of killing all of God's prophets. Because she was from Phoenicia, she worshipped Baal, and she thought all these prophets of God needed to die. And so this guy, Obadiah, is faithful, he, but he worships God. He loves the Lord deeply and is seeking to be upright. And so he's caught between, like, rightly serving his boss, who's a very wicked person. And so whenever his boss does something that's rightly part of being king, like finding new grazing lands and finding water in the drought, he goes out and he does the best job he possibly can. And when it comes to prophets, he hides two groups of 50 of them in different caves and feeds and waters them, even though his boss is trying to kill them. And God blesses him for that. That's pretty complicated, right? He's lying, he's cheating, he's stealing. Right? The Egyptian midwives— were told by the Pharaoh that they needed to kill all the boy babies of the Israelites. And so they went to the Israelite women, they delivered their children, they helped them hide their boy babies. And then when Pharaoh's like, what the heck is going on? He's like, listen, the, mid, the, the Israelite women, they know what you've told me, and they're vigorous. They just have the babies before we get there. We don't even know what's going on. They explicitly lie to Pharaoh. And it says in, in the Torah that God blessed them and gave those midwives more children which was considered a blessing. I know today is considered a curse, but it was—that was considered a blessing in that context because they lied. I believe the same is true with like the, the ten booms, for example, that hid Jews in, in Nazi Germany and lied to the SS officers about it, and God blessed them. J Jesus knows that the application of courage— can't be applied simplistically. It's going to get a little complicated. I mean, between services, a woman said to me, so I work at a hospital, and they said, now, for every patient, I have to say, what, what would you like me to say your gender is? Right? And this is like up in one of the, like the country towns where you're like, you're asking like 78-year-old farmers, what would you like your gender to be? And, um, and they're kind of like, um, I can't even hear you, young lady, you know? But she's like, what do I do? Because like, I might get fired. This is a directive that's come. Apparently, it's a federal regulation. And I said, listen, there's a way you can phrase this so that you're not entering into what you think is false, right? So you can say, you can say to them, for example, what would you like for me to mark down as your gender? 
Now, I don't agree with that. I, I was like, I mean, I, we, we can advocate for something on the side, but this woman has to figure out in a complicated situation, how does she respect the, the right authority of her boss? How does she serve patients in the midst of a bunch of cultural confusion about some things? And, and exist. How does she pull an Obadiah? Listen, guys, we're going to have a lot more conversations in this culture about how we're going to be pulling Obadiahs. Trying to be faithful to God and faithful to what the context we're being called into. Jesus said it was going to be complicated, but he didn't say the foundational principle of courage was complicated. It's not. The foundational principle of courage is extraordinarily simple. Right? And David just goes through it. He says, listen, this is the foundation. The foundation is God is on his throne. He's utterly sovereign over all things in my living and in my dying. Two, he sees everything. He examines all things, and he cares about faithfulness and cowardice and courage and, the, and, and what is wicked and what is righteous, and he cares about all that stuff. And in watching, he tests us to reveal who we are, and he also, he also trains us to make us who we were meant to be. And this is one of the ways God is preparing us for eternity, creating things in the world, showing the difference between righteousness and wickedness, glorifying himself, and doing a thousand things we know nothing about. But, if, but God has shown us and told us that this is how he works. And if you believe that he's on his throne, and you believe he works this way, then whatever we don't understand about what God allows, we can know that the God who is righteous and the God who loves justice— that the upright will see his face. That no matter what you fear, no matter what happens to you, no matter how you may be disgraced or shamed or killed or just disliked, <laughs> or as in many cases, that where there will be great triumph for you. I mean, I, as I look around, I can see faces of many of you who in great fear have taken enormous risks and stepped out in faithfulness and God has provided He's preserved you. Sometimes he's, he's given you victory over people who treated you terribly. Sometimes you even won over your enemy to you so that you could be friends and brothers and sisters. I, I've, I've seen God provide for many of you in this room many times in lots of situations. There's many times where you don't just die in faith like Isaiah. There are many times like Elijah, you succeed and God gives you victory. God shows his glory. But you can't really know. You don't know if you're going to be an Isaiah or an Elijah. But what's true for both of them, and what's true for anybody who believes these three foundations of courage, is that sooner or later, come hell or high water, as they say, the upright will see his face. Worship team, you guys can, can come on up. So you can summarize all of this, how we face fear, very simply. The application of, of how to face fear, what your tactics are going to be in all your different fights— that's stuff that small group and friendship is made of. Talk it over with your friends. Seek wisdom. Try to figure it out. But the foundation, right? When the foundations fall apart, what can the righteous do? They can do a lot. Don't let fear take you. When the foundations fail, here's what the upright can do. They can take refuge in the Lord because the upright will see his face. And what David could not have known then, and the comfort we have now, is that we worship and follow one that was faithful unto death, 
but raised in the glory of resurrection. We follow, we follow a God who is the, God, the same Lord of David who showed us in his life, death, and resurrection what it looks like to be faithful. There are many victories and healings and great things Jesus did when he faced things. There are many arguments that he won. There are many hearts that he changed. And then ultimately, he was beaten and crucified and dumped in a tomb like a piece of garbage. And he rose victorious because the upright, the upright one saw his face. And through him, though none of us are upright all the time, and certainly David was not, but the righteous will live by faith. We who believe in Jesus live by faith and not by sight. And the only way that we can, ha we can reject the invitation of cowardice and we can accept the call of courage is if we build it on something more foundational, greater than our fear. And we can only bear that weight. Listen to me. I want you to listen to this. You can only bear that weight if you add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. The righteous will live by faith. God has made a promise that if you seek to add those things to your faith, his divine power has given you everything you need to participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world. He's promised that. Do you believe it in faith? Will you step out in faithfulness so that you can see him provide and, pr and preserve you? As we sing, sing this last song, would you reflect on that and think about it and and and, and seek to take some kind of step of faith. What, what, repent of something. Believe God in something. Receive his encouragement and promise in something. Let God do something in you. God, as we stand and sing, we pray that you would work in us. Holy Spirit, please do something. Break things free. Encourage us. Change us. Strengthen us. So that we can not only encourage, bear any weight that falls on us. And turn away from any invitation to cowardice but that we'd be the people who would never again give an invitation to cowardice. And like it says in Galatians 6, that we would be able not just to bear our own load, but to help carry the burdens of others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.